0: Now, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the prophecy of Jonah. If you're using the church Bible, it's on page 774, Jonah chapter 1. It's, it's a great joy of my life and uh, ministry to be able to have this regular communion with you all in the ministry of the Word of God For nothing binds us together more as the family of God than God ministering His Word to us as His people. I'm going to read from verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Well, the prophet of Israel, the prophet of the Lord, is dead, lost at sea. At least that was the story of the mariners when they returned to dry land. Their testimony was they'd seen him. They'd thrown him overboard. They were responsible. They'd seen him as he sank beneath the waves in that dreadful storm. They'd seen the wind immediately stop blowing. They'd seen, remarkably, the sea become as calm as as a pond. It was an unnatural calmness, a supernatural, an unusual occurrence, a circumstance they'd never encountered before. Their guilt at throwing Joan overboard had motivated them to search as far as they could see on the horizon, look for sights of him. Apart from the emergence of a dorsal fin of some sea creature far in the distance, there was no sign of Jonah anywhere. He died so that we might live, was their testimony. He told us that if we threw him overboard, his God would quieten the storm. And his God was true to his word. That's why we now believe in the God of heaven. We've now thrown away all of our idols. We've given up all all our idolatry. The covenant Lord of Israel is now our Lord, and we follow him as our God. That was their testimony. And they would have retold their story for you as often as you were prepared to sit down And buy them another beer, they would tell you the story of their conversion to the God of Israel. This was their encounter with Israel's prophet. This, more importantly, was their encounter with Israel's God. It was a pity about Jonah. He had a promising future, people thought. They'd hoped that perhaps one day he'd write a book or something for posterity, but now all that possibility was gone now that Jonah had made his big splash. Well the story so far the story so far has taught us what happens when God rocks your boat. You're going to get wet. <laughs> when at last we see Jonah drowned, drowned to all intents and purposes, dead to the men whose lives had been endangered by his disobedience, dead to these men who were now converted by his message, dead to the world because he had acted in disobedience against his God. That's the state of affairs by the time we get down to verse 17. You know the story which kind of destroys the, the kind of anticipation, the pause, the, the tragedy as it has played out to this point. You all think you know what's going on. But if I can adapt the words of Mark Twain in response to news reports of his death, the reports of Jonah's demise had been greatly exaggerated. That really is what we're now coming to in the story. Two two aspects of Jonah's life that stand out in these verses we've read. The salvation of Jonah and the song of Jonah. Verse 17 tells us, About the salvation of Jonah. If you've read this for the very first time and you come to verse 17, it will come as a huge surprise to you. Of course, it's not a surprise to anybody, because you all have heard the story. Even if you're not a Christian, you've heard the story. You know all about Jonah and the whale. It's a whale of a tale. And and it's so well known, and we know the surprise is taken out of it. But here it is again. Here it is again. It is a surprise. What happens to, to Jonah? Let's read it. Let me read it to you. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now in some ways it's a pity. It's a pity that God mentions the fish. He could have just said a submersible uh, collected him or a submarine was in the vicinity at the time. But no, it has to be a fish and from since From that original description, we have been theorizing and questioning all about the fish. What kind of fish could it have been? Could a fish have swallowed Jonah? Could he have survived for three days? And at one level, that kind of questioning is unnecessary. Because if you're in this room this morning or you're watching by webcast and you believe in the God of the Bible, then you have no problem. You have no problem with this story. You have no problem… Imagining, or not even imagining, but just believing that God could provide any means available to him or created by him to collect his servant and deliver him safely to dry land. If the God who raised Jesus from the dead was involved in the life of Jonah, then anything is possible. But I understand that there are some of you who need a little bit of help accepting that this is possible. So the library research service of the Encyclopedia Britannica. I did not check this up, but I think I stole this from Dr. Boyce years ago because I've got it in a certain area, and it may very well be that that's where I got it from. I'm not sure, but I'll kind of semi-give him the credit uh, because I think I may very well need to give him all the credit when I've checked it out afterwards. But in in the library research service of the Encyclopedia Britannica, It refers to the sperm whale. An average specimen might have a mouth 20 feet long, 15 feet high, and 9 feet wide. That's a big mouth. That's a mouth larger than most rooms. It's a mouth larger than most people who've got big mouths, I know. The sperm whale feeds largely on squid, which are often much larger than a man. Could a man survive in its stomach? Well, apparently they could. There are stories of whales being caught, cut open, and sailors who'd been swept overboard, being found alive but unconscious in their stomachs. Of course, the conditions wouldn't be very good. Uh, There would be some air to breathe. You would be struggling to get oxygen out of the air, but there had to be air in the animal's stomach to keep it afloat. There would have been heat, between 104 and 105 degrees Fahrenheit. The gastric juices of the animal would have affected your skin. You would be itching all over. You would not, however, be digested. Living matter would not be digested because the fish would digest itself, obviously, if it were able to do that. It is possible it was not a whale. It's possible that it was a sea dog, a, a form of a shark, a species of, fo- sh- of shark. Uh, without the terrible teeth we usually associate, but big enough to house a man, as this creature was able to house the man. But whether it was the shark, the sea dog, or a whale is immaterial, really. Uh, the, the point is of the matter is that's the report, and it's a possibility, anyway, from a human point of view. In addition to that, there's a historical link between Jonah and Nineveh. They discovered an ancient seal coming from about the year 526. And on the seal, stamped on it, there is the image of a man emerging from a sea monster. There was a mound for centuries down in, uh, in the Tigris Valley under which they discovered ancient Nineveh. And that mound, for over a thousand years was referred to as Nebi Yunus, the prophet Jonah. And you can imagine that Jonah's story must have impacted the people of Nineveh because Nineveh worshiped the fish god, Dagon. Now all of that's purely of general interest. It may be a particular help to some of you. Uh, It will uh, be of general interest to all of you, but the fish is really incidental to the story. It has a swim on part and then it disappears. That's that's the end. The real focus of the story is Jonah in the belly of the fish. And you can imagine the experience of this man thrown overboard, struggling to breathe, sinking down into the water. He he describes some of it in, in the song that he sings, the water's closed over me, the deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head. This is a scary story. Down, down, down to the roots of the mountain, he says. He went. It was a frightening experience of drowning. And then suddenly to be scooped up in something. Suddenly to find yourself plunged into this dark, totally dark world inside the belly of the fish with oxygen scarce. Each frantic gasp of air saturated with salt water. The claustrophobia. I woke up earlier on this week from a dream that I was in the belly of a fish. I go to bed thinking about what I'm going to say to you people. Seriously. I had a nightmare. I hate small confined spaces and I'm thinking the terror That it must be for that to happen to you. Lord, preserve me from ever being swallowed by a fish. Ever. The slimy feel of the mucous membrane that lines the stomach. There are no songs, by the way, that I know that I can sing to you this morning to relieve the tension. But every movement of the fish, you're slip sliding away. There is slip sliding away. (laughs) Here you go a song for every occasion <laughs> you know in the oh dear it says in the book of hebrews there's a, a metaphor used that reminds us of the story of jonah it's a metaphor from someone, of someone drifting at sea the author is speaking about the grace of god and the marks of the presence of god uh, and he says this we must pay more attention more careful attention therefore To what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. What the author is saying is this: We are faced with two choices. Either we hold fast to the Word of God, or we drift away from that Word of God. And where we drift to, there is no way of anticipating. When once we lose our moorings and our grasp of God's Word, anything can happen. God let. Jonah go, and down to Joppa he went, and down into the boat he went, and down into the depths of the sea he went. God let him go. And the testimony of Jonah is captured in these words. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, it says, And just before then, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and the Lord spoke to the fish, it says at the end, and vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. What is his conclusion? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah's salvation was an act of God. The word he uses here, to appoint, the Lord appointed is one of the key words in this book. It's used again in chapter 4, in verse 6 and 7 and 8. It teaches us the absolute control of God over every detail of our lives, every aspect of His creation. It's the same word that's used in Psalm 147, And translated by the word determines. He determines the numbers of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. And just as the Lord appointed an ark to save Noah from the flood, so the Lord appointed this fish to save Noah. Of Jonah from drowning, he appoints the fish. He determines that the fish will be there at that time, at that moment, in proximity to this man who is drowning in the depths of the sea and will have his mouth open at that right moment to capture him before he expires completely Hallelujah. as he is drowning. This is the creative. Sovereign work of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And as you read this story, keep in mind that when Jonah refers to the distresses, as he does in verse 2, as he refers to the terrors that he felt, he is referring backwards to his experience in the water before his salvation. He is referring backwards to the time he is drowning Now that he's in the fish, his talk is all of salvation. It's all of God's deliverance. It's all of God's rescue. The cry of distress is past tense. Now it's the voice of confidence. In the water, Jonah was sure he would die. In the fish, Jonah is certain that he will live. It is all of God. It belongs to God. It is of the salvation of God. And when we think of this word salvation, although it refers to Jonah's deliverance at this point, ultimately the word salvation, whenever it's tied to the Lord, has to do with the big, really big salvation that he's going to accomplish for men and women in the world. We'll look at that later on. So you have the salvation of Jonah. And then you have the song of Jonah. Jonah. His song is a salvation song. Throughout the Bible, you'll find acts of deliverance or rescue or salvation are followed by songs of deliverance, rescue, and salvation. Children of Israel, they're rescued out of Egypt. They come together in the desert, and Miriam and Moses sing a great salvation song. In the book of Revelation, the children of God are brought out of the world. They're rescued from danger. They're brought to heaven, and there is a new song of salvation that they sing. And wherever people are rescued, wherever people are delivered by God, they're grateful to God. They sing salvation songs to God. Psalm 107, for example, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He redeemed from trouble. That's Jonah's song. Jonah is thanking God for the deliverance that God Has given to him. It is a complete deliverance. As he comes to God in prayer, he remembers the depth to which he has gone. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. The belly of Sheol, Sheol is the land of the dead. He felt death had claimed him. You look down to verse. To verse six, verse 6, I went down, he says, to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. It was as if death claimed him. He felt death was putting its, its arms around him. The word he uses is a legal term for what is unalterable. This was it. This was now you in death's final grip. And when all hope was lost, the unexpected, the impossible happened. You brought me down. And when my life was fainting away, he says, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you. You brought me up from the pit. God's action on behalf of his people. He never lets his people go finally. You should know that, Christian friend. He will never let you go finally. He will always pursue his people, even his disobedient people. He will come after you. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the year. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears... I hid from him and under running laughter. Up visted hopes I sped and shot, precipitated down titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy they beat, and a voice beat. More instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. What Jonah had found is, once he took matters into his own hands, once he had taken his life into his own hands, once that he had determined that he would not do what God the Lord had said to him, once he had decided that he would chart his own course, everything failed him. All things betray thee, who betrayest me, says God. And it was as if life was slipping through his hands as his breath comes near its end. And it is there at that point that he remembers the Lord. He calls out to God, Help! Of course, he can't speak. He's under the water. You try speaking under the water, he can't do it. But in his mind and in his heart, his signal goes straight to heaven. Do you know the remarkable thing that I come to again and again in my Christian life is that when there is a feeling inside me that I cannot bring to words because I'm in the grip of fear or anxiety or pressure or terror, that sigh, that that impulse of the heart is taken by the Holy Spirit and is translated into a perfect prayer that reaches the very heart of God. The Spirit within us, says the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, intercedes for us in words beyond words. He who knows the mind of God knows my heart, and he translates my heart to the mind of God. The Spirit's work on behalf of God's people. And in that stomach of that fish, the belly of that fish, this man is now rejoicing in the deliverance. Where death reigned, Jonah had found life. As the Apostle Paul puts it, if we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. And many of us have been in the depths, many of us have been rebellious against God from time to time. Maybe you know, maybe you're here this morning and you're on the run, as it were, from Christian things. And this morning God's cornered you. You're in this little corner of His world. He's cornered you under the sound of His Word today. His Word comes to you again. Will you remember the Lord? Will you call upon Him? Will you do what Jonah did? He re-enters the presence of God Do you see what he says in verse 4? I said, I am driven away from your sight. That's how he felt. He wasn't complaining, but that's how he felt. I am driven away from your sight. Now you may say, Jonah, you're where you chose to be. But what he's feeling now, you see, is he's realizing that that Not only has he chosen to be away from God, God has nudged him further away from him. God has taken away all the comforts, all the reassurances, all the blessings, as it were, so that he is even more deeply uncomfortable in his rebellion against God. His heart was condemning him. I said, I'm driven away from your sight. But now he's talking to God. And he's talking in faith. You see this. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. He's coming in faith to God, believing that God is in charge. Now that he's in the belly of the fish, he feels already God has acted to save him. And he's recalling what he did when he was in the water. I called out to the Lord, out of my distress. And he answered me, as the psalmist says in Psalm 130, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry. So what's he doing when he prays? When he prays, he's putting himself back into God's presence. He's pulling himself up again, and he's starting off where he might have once again a relationship with God. You see, this is the mark of somebody who's truly experienced God in their life. They may be angry with God. They may be disobedient to God. They may be confused about what God is up to. But they go to God. They go to God with their complaints. They go to God with their questions. They go to God with their concerns. They go to God with themselves and all of the mess they've made of their life. They go to God. God had to be dramatic, hadn't He, to get His attention. Thankfully, He doesn't always have to go this far to get our attention and draw his people back. But be sure of this, he will go as far as it takes him to go to bring his people back to himself. Martin Luther used to talk of these situations when he, and, and refer to them as God's merciful wrath. Those times when he demolishes all the props and comforts, That we have all the things we are leaning on, all the things that are replacements for him in order that we might cast ourselves on him. He does that for individuals. He does it for churches. He humbles them in order that they might come back into his presence. He does it to manifest his glory. Here is Jonah now, and he reenters the presence of God. Here is faith looking, looking to the Lord looking in faith, I shall again look upon your holy holy temple. He prays in faith as he comes to God. Jonah re-enters the presence of God. Jonah recalls the Word of God. This second chapter, as you read the song part, and it's laid out in our Bibles in in that form, you'll find that it's made up of bits and pieces of bits of the Bible all over the place, various psalms. Is this Psalm 8, for example? Is it 42? Many of the psalms are captured here by Jonah. Now, why did that happen? Well, it happened because this man's mind was full of Scripture. He, he wanted to get away from God's voice, but now that he's been rescued, he wants to remember what God had been saying. He wants to remember God's Word. He had disobeyed God's voice. Now he's drawing on what he knows of the Scriptures. That's why we need to read the Bible. That's why we need to hear the Bible taught to us. That's why we need to memorize Scripture. There'll come a day when you find yourself, not in the belly of a fish, hopefully, but you'll find yourself in a dark place without any books to read or anyone to call up or without your iPhone with with the Scriptures on it for you to read or any other means of getting the Bible. And what, what you will draw from is what is in your head and in your heart. And you will need it in those times in order to regain your sanity, in order to regain your compose as a believer. You find this happening all through the Scripture, Psalm 119, my soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. Or again, Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word. I hope. It is a psychological reality that God's people find God's Word to be an anchor for their hearts. Jonah re enters the presence of God. He prays. He recalls the Word of God. And thirdly, he recognizes the sovereignty of God. Merely reflecting on the Word of God put everything that was going on in his life in the pers- into perspective. You see, he could have concluded that his circumstances were a matter of chance or accident. He had left home that morning, or whenever it was. He'd gone down to Joppa, and randomly there was a boat there. The boat was going to Tarshish on the west coast of Spain. That sounded a good thing. That was all by chance or accident. On the sea, they had a bad storm. And so on, all of that, chance, accident. But Jonah could never see it that way. In chapter 1, verse 15, we read about the sailors. They took Jonah and threw him overboard. Here in Jonah's prayer, verse 3, chapter 2, you hurled me into the deep. Same language. They hurled Jonah into the deep. You hurled me into the deep. He's not accusing God. He's acknowledging God. He's acknowledging that God is the Lord and that God has been hunting for him, searching him, chasing him down the nights and down the days and the labyrinthine ways, looking for him to bring him back into a relationship with himself. We are listening as we read this to an awakened backslider, somebody who has. Moved away, shifted spiritually away from their relationship with God. Maybe you're one this morning. In Leviticus 26, it says about the backslider, I will make their hearts so fearful that the sound of a wind-blown leaf will put them to flight. In other words... One of the hallmarks of a backslider is the littlest thing terrifies you. The littlest thing disturbs you. And when you are disturbed, when God by His grace rouses you from spiritual lethargy and you're emerging out of your backsliding and moving back towards God, you become even more conscious of the weight of God's judgment on your life. That was Jonah's experience. I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. And as he reflects on God, he recognizes the sovereignty of God, that from him, through him, and to him are all things. And we have the reminder that God is determined to draw near to us, that we might draw near to him, whatever it takes whatever the cost. I find the story of Johnny Erickson Tadda moving and have done now for decades. She was a quadriplegic. She is a quadriplegic as a result of a diving accident when she was in her late teens. And she says in one of her books this, today as I look back, I am convinced that the whole ordeal of my paralysis was inspired by God's love. I wasn't a rat in a maze. I wasn't the result of some cruel divine joke. God had reasons for my suffering. And learning some of those reasons had made all the difference in the world. There's an air of authenticity there, isn't there? A young woman, quadriplegic for life, but in the midst of it all knows God. Once Some, someone has recognized the sovereignty of God, that God rules over all, it feeds in peace, conviction. Strength, backbone. Here's what Job says when he made the same discovery. I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be overthrown. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself in dust and ashes. Jonah re-enters the presence of God. He begins to pray. Jonah recalls the Word of God. And Jonah recognizes the sovereignty of God. And then fourthly, Jonah rediscovers the grace of God. I I want you to notice the the movement here. Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. Sin had cast him down. But God brought him up. You brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Sin had cast him down, down. God had brought him up. Secondly, sin had cast him down. I have been banished. I am driven away from your sight. Verse 4. But God brings him in. My prayer rose to you. I will look again towards your holy mountain. Your holy temple. In the very tunnel through which he's passing. In the midst of the gloom of his experience. He begins to see light and hope. And he wants this light and hope for other people. He reflects on the people he knows. He reflects on the world around him. He says this. Look at verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. He uses language there. He's praying about other people that they will see the emptiness of idolatry and see how misguided they are. He uses two words. Breath. Breath which quickly evaporates. In fact, Gethin Jones, who used to come to our church here, is in London right now. And on Facebook this morning, he said, It's July, and I was able to see my breath this morning. It tells you how cool it was in London this morning. When you can see your breath, which you can very often over there, in the middle of summer, it quickly evaporates. And then the word, another word that means emptiness, devoid of life. Those who regard vain idols, things that are empty, devoid of life, things that are like the breath that quickly evaporate. He's praying for these people that they might discover the hope of steadfast love. Now, it's interesting. Who might he be thinking of? Might he be thinking of those sailors on the boat? Might he be recalling that they, in the midst of their despair and fear and terror, were crying out to their gods? Crying out to gods who couldn't save them till Jonah said to them, Here's the word of the Lord. God, my God says, the God of heaven, the Lord God of, of uh, Israel, and he, he explains a bit of what, what he means by that. The God of heaven tells you, if you throw me overboard, he'll still the storm. He made the storm. He made the seas and the dry land. He can still the storm for you. If so, then I want you to notice he's praying for those people that they would find the hope of steadfast love. What he doesn't know in the belly of the fish is... That is, prayer is being answered above the sea in a boat, and then eventually in dry land when they go back to where they'd come from, and they're telling everybody, we were once idolaters, but we've given up our idolatry, and now we believe in the God of heaven. We believe in the, in the sovereign Lord, the steadfast, loving Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. We believe in Him. And we've offered sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving to him. Unknown to Jonah, his prayers are used. The prayers of a disobedient man are being used. The prayers of a man who's still far from God are being used for the salvation of other people. Well, as he comes to God, he rediscovers the grace of God, the loving kindness, the steadfast love of God. And so we come then to those last words, salvation, belong to the Lord. I said earlier they apply definitely to His physical rescue, but whatever this form of words is used here, connected to the Lord, they refer to the far-reaching, eternally conceived, Presently being outworked, soon to be perfected, salvation in its fullest sense. Salvation in its fullest sense is not only that your soul is saved so that today you are peace with God, but that your body is raised from the dead and made like Christ's resurrection body, and your planet, this universe, is renewed to exclude everything that tends to decay, and to include everything that tends to the flourishing of the resurrected life of God's people. That's full salvation. And what Jonah is saying is that full salvation is conceived by, is delivered by, is perfected by the Lord himself. Jonah, in the belly of the fish, prays. It's not a shopping list of requests. We learn a thing about prayer here. John Calvin puts it like this. Prayer is the chief exercise of faith by which we daily receive God's benefits. We don't need to ask for them. By praying we receive them. It, It is the chief exercise of faith. This man praying gives evidence that he's a believer. That he's a believer. And it's through prayer, beloved, It's through prayer that we daily receive God's benefits. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the richness of your truth. We thank you for Jonah, for rescuing him and using his rescue to point us to Jesus. Just as Jonah is in the fish and Noah is in the ark, So today, in a much more wonderful way, believers here are in Christ. My life is hid with Christ in God beyond the reach of harm, the hymn writer says. We pray today that from our position in Christ, there might come forth from us prayers and praises to the highest heaven, and that you would give us today the benefits of your blessing in our lives. We ask in Jesus' strong name, amen.